Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. When you said you were working from home, you were in fact searching for the next business, the next novel to read, or listening to a listening to a, oh, a novel. walking the dog. Yeah. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the first FT Business Book Challenge podcast, the place to discover the best business writing, and in which our top commentators will set you, the listeners, a challenge to read six classic business books over the next twelve weeks. I'm Helen Barrett, the FT's Deputy Work and Careers Editor. With me is Andrew Hill, Management Editor and Associate Editor of the FT, and Anne Franker, Chief Executive of the Chartered Management Institute. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thanks. Coming up, Andrew will be revealing what went on behind the scenes at the FT McKinsey Business Book of the Year Awards shortlist event in New York this month. And if you haven't seen the six books on the shortlist yet, take a look at our Best Business Books site at ft.com forward slash business hyphen book hyphen award. Anne will be giving us her take on the shortlist. And John Thornhill, the FT's innovation editor, will be setting our first business book challenge, which explains our title. More of that shortly. But first, and this is the question I love to ask readers and colleagues, Anne, what are you reading at the moment? Well, I I hate to admit that I am not reading a business book. Um, so let me be clear about that. Um, but I'm also a little bit behind. I'm reading The Luminaries, uh, which won the Man Booker Prize, but it won it in 2013. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's one of these big, chunky books that you can sort of read in various places and positions, like on the beach or, you know, when it's pouring with rain like it was today. <laughs> How did you come to The Luminaries? I found it on the shelf. <laughs> I thought, oh, yes, I bought this and forgot to read it. <laughs> <laughs> I think I ought to give it a whirl. And, you know, I thought, oh, yeah, that's quite good. And yeah. is it good? Yes, it is good, actually. It's also, it's sort of about, you know, it's a mystery and it's sort of the gold rush mentality. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it has, obviously, the grand themes of any engrossing book, mystery, questions of character, good mm-hmm. and evil. Mm-hmm. you know, conspiracy theories, all those modern things too. And do, do you read mystery books generally? Is that a genre that you're... Well, I think a lot of books currently, you know, they're absolutely designed to have that element and they and, and that is what makes them do well. You know, Your Girl on the Trains, for example, yeah. would be a big example of that. So I do think that there's an element of, well, if I, if I, if I have plot twists and turns, that's going to, you know, be an ingredient in some sort of possibility popularity algorithm. (laughs) (laughs) Andrew, what are you reading at the moment? Well, I'm reading or or just finished reading uh, The Road Home by Rose Tremaine, which is a 2008 novel, also not a business book, about a migrant worker from an unnamed eastern EU state 
who comes to the UK to find a job, make money and return money to home to help his family. It's a really well-imagined idea of what it must be like arriving from a relatively poor country to a relatively rich one uh, in a time of hostility Mm. to immigration, uh, suspicion Mm. about what the motives uh, are Mm. of uh, of migrants. And even though it was written in 2008, it's, of course, got a great kind of... Very prescient. For for a Brexit year, for a year (laughs) of a Brexit referendum. It's got uh, got some great insights. And it's also a beautiful, rather moving melancholic story actually so uh, that I'm very much enjoyed Good. Uh, few lessons probably if you wanted to take it very seriously for uh, what, what for would the lessons for managers be well I think there's certainly a broad lesson about walking in other people's shoes if I'm not to be too profound about it it is through Rose Tremaine a way of thinking about how you would be viewed if you mm. arrived in another country with uh, little English mm. and little knowledge, really, of how that country works, how, however part of the same system it may be. So uh, maybe a general lesson about empathy, really, which mm. is, of course, what people think that novels yeah. do teach readers more than... I think there's even some research yes. that shows that novel reading encourages empathy. Perhaps so it must be set outside of London. It starts in London. Bits oh. of it is then set outside London, and then it returns to his home home country. I won't give away the, won't give away the plot. <laughs> but why, is, why is the country unnamed? What, what, what do you think she was doing there? I think maybe making Lev, the, the main character, a sort of everyman. Somebody mm. will write in now and say, of course the country's named. It's named on page two and I just missed it. <laughs> but the, uh, I think maybe there's a sort of element of, yeah. you know, this is how you would... And by naming the country, I think she would have made it too yeah. specific. Yeah, it would have been universal. too much to be yeah. able to say this isn't a universal story, mm. which is, I think, what she's striving at. So what are you reading, Helen? Well, seeing as you asked, I'm reading 2000 biography of Eleanor of Aquitaine by Alison Weir. Sounds heavy. It is heavy, but I really think there's some interesting leadership lessons in this. Eleanor of Aquitaine, 12th century aristocrat, married very young to Louis VII of France and uh, later on to Henry II of England, was one of the leading dominant European figures of the 12th century, for those of you who don't know. (laughs) And she was ruthlessly ambitious and, you know, unusually for a woman at that time, managed to accumulate a lot of power and wield a lot of power. But what's interesting about, you know, the book covers the scope of her life, but what's interesting is that in her early life, her ambition almost destroyed her because she was vain and she was susceptible to flattery and, you know, all these sorts of things. She made endless clunking leadership mistakes. But then she gradually learnt statecraft and became a very effective queen by the time she married Henry II. But was she reviled for her, her ambition? Because we often see this even today, that ambitious women suffer let's let's call it the Hillary backlash. Right? She was, mm-hmm. yes. She certainly was. And she certainly faced a lot of opposition. It's a fascinating... T- I mean, it's entertaining popular history, but there's some interesting leadership lessons there. I, th- I thoroughly recommend it to anyone who has, has a passing interest in medieval history. Where is she sourcing her material? I mean, is this, 
this can't have been a highly documented era. So. She, yes, I, I do wonder about that as I'm reading it. Alison Weir seems to have an awful lot of detail about people's motives and about the various sort of cast of characters, you know, in various royal courts. She sets out her sources. She's sourcing from letters and from documents and from, you know, monastery documents and that sort of thing. But I wonder how much of it is, you know, as a reader, I, I, I my confidence wavers a bit. Sometimes I think, does she know this or is but she does just that matter? embellishing? No, because it's a ripping tale. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so you have the ability to write the seven leadership lessons from Eleanor of Aquitaine. Yeah, I should probably column. do that. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there, there are so many management books published every year and so many fail to make an impact. And what do you think makes a good business book? Well, that's a great question. And I think that um, the relatability of business book to resonate with people, to be relevant, is very important. I think that you can do that sort of one of two ways. You can do that by making it very impactful on an individual level. So I'm thinking of, you know, the seven habits of highly effective Mm. people, right? Mm. One of the best-selling business books of all time. Or you can do that by making sense of things that are puzzling people, that they're struggling to articulate and struggling to identify and explain Mm -hmm. and giving them a theory and an exposition that helps them to make sense of the modern world. And I think a lot of the books nominated in this year's competition do that. Mm. And Andrew, what do you think makes a good business writer? Well, I think one of the things that the award has looked at has been a bit the distinction between the sort of journalistic approach. Mm. You've done a lot of heavy reporting, you've investigated a company or a personality or or a theme and been able to kind of draw out that based on the evidence you've uncovered. And at the other end of the scale, business books and management books that are written from from very kind of high level of sort of academic and theoretical and Mm. um, cerebral knowledge of, of, of a topic. Of which um, we at the FT get sent by the truckload. We, we get sent some very large <laughs> books of, <laughs> of that type. And that's been one of the things that has coloured discussion over the 12 years or so that we've been running the 12 editions of the of the award. But I mean, the, I personally think the best business writing is writing that is as compelling as you say the mm. Eleanor Aquitaine book is, for example, something that can take a big topic and yet make you want to go on reading. It's actually the same elements that make mm-hmm. you want to go on reading a novel, I think, mm-hmm. to yes. a large degree. It shouldn't be different. I'm always a bit depressed when I pick up a a business book which has decided that it's going to follow a sort of business book format and slightly with the, kind with of the bullet points you. at the yes. end of the chapter setting out the lessons. Yeah, you want to be a bit careful because I think both Anne and I have written oh, books with bullet points at the end of the Well, and we were coached to do that because yes. apparently people like that. They right? do it's like sort it. Of, you yeah. know, the simple bullet point summary, which we're quite used to, bite sizes. But as a writer, do, I mean, how, did you find that constrained you? I mean, you've both written business books. If, you, if you're having to summarise the lessons at the end of every chapter, you know, how did you feel about that when you were writing it? Did you think, oh, God, this is so formulaic, or why should I have to do this? I've just written this, you know, why have I got to write it all again? Or did you find that it was a useful discipline for crystallising what you'd just written? I had to slightly grip my teeth because I've I've had those types of books come across my desk a lot. But yeah. I can also see, you know, clearly, if you're confident enough that you've written well the rest of the chapter, actually, I think even, even the best business writers in some of those books are still encouraged 
courage to include that because, frankly, we all of us know that business people are extremely busy. One of the reasons we run our book awards and we write reviews and we, uh, in writing books, do those summaries is because we know that some of our readers are simply not going to have the time to go through every element of it. They are going to want to. Absolutely. Mm. And they're also going to want to return to the book, Mm. my hope would be, and remind themselves, okay, there's something in that chapter that really stuck out for me. I just have a quick look before I go into my next meeting. And if you think about the world of business and effective presentations, for example, they say you you tell them what you're going to tell them, you tell them, and then you remind them what you told them, right? (laughs) This is the effective presentation. Yeah, it is. And in essence, that's what these bullet points are attempting to be, makes it clearer for people, and it gives sort of an aid memoir Mm. about, oh, yeah, that's what that was about. Mm. And for you as an author, it's sort of you have to ask yourself, oh, gee, you know, did I make any main points in that section? What were my main points in that section? <laughs> <laughs> and the FT McKinsey Business Book of the Year Awards, the shortlist was announced on September the 7th at what looked like a glittering event in New York, which Andrew attended. Uh, the winning title will be announced in November. Andrew, tell us more about the aim of the awards. So the award started in 2005, and the, and the aim from the start, and I didn't take any credit, although I've been associated since then for the, for the mission statement, if you like, is to choose the most compelling and enjoyable uh, book on business issues um, of the year in question. And what the key part of what we set out to do in 2005 is that we put in enjoyable, because mm. actually there are, as we've discussed, plenty of huge mm. business and economics books, and we cast our net pretty broadly. Mm. The, there are plenty of huge books that are worthy reads and indeed might turn out to be seminal texts for economists Mm. or for business strategists, but which are simply not that enjoyable. And so in deciding the list and narrowing it down from the 250, 300 or so entries that we get every year to a long list of 15 and a short list of six, an eventual winner, having that enjoyable in there has generally been a pretty useful uh, way of winnowing out. You can beg to differ if you don't like some of the books that we picked (laughs) over the years, but the uh, there is actually a, a sense in which uh, that has been quite a good filter. So let's just remind ourselves of those enjoyable books on the shortlist this year. Um, we have Alibaba by Duncan Clark. Of course, the story of how Jack Ma founded and built the second biggest internet company in the world. We have Makers and Takers by Rana Faruha. How Wall Street's reign over Main Street threatens the American dream. The Man Who Knew, The Life and Times of Alan Greenspan by Sebastian Malaby. What Works, Gender Equality by Design by Iris Bonnet. The Rise and Fall of American Growth by Robert J. Gordon. And The Hundred Year Life, Living and Working in an Age of Longevity by Linda Gratton and Andrew Scott. So, so those those are all entertaining themes, as you say, and I could imagine reading all six of those and feeling thoroughly entertained by the end of it. But it's a tough panel of judges to impress, isn't it? This year, the panel was chaired by Lionel Barber, editor of the FT. We have people like Mohammed A. L. Irian, chief economic advisor of Alliance, Dr. Dambisa Moyo, the global economist, all in the same room. What's it like behind the scenes? Are there disagreements or is there a sort of cosy consensus? It's somewhere between the two, actually. I mean, there, there is a there's a robust debate, as you'd expect from those top people. I mean, Mohamed El Arian is a former winner of the of the prize and author this year of a, of himself of a very good uh, new uh, business book, The Only Game in Town, and uh, and Dambisa Moya, also a published author and, among others. So there there is a strong debate. There is this discussion always about the enjoyable versus 
things that are compelling mm. and and weighing up. You know, there are worthy reads here. Are they enjoyable enough? Often that's a debate that comes out particularly strongly when the when they debate the shortlist and try and choose a winner. Because the meeting that we had uh, in New York earlier this month is really about the getting the fifteen long list down to a shortlist of six. So mm. you don't actually have to then really nail your colours to the mast. There's a sort of element of informal voting about uh, which books should go through and uh, a certain amount and this is interesting to me because at this stage I sort of sit aside from the judges and just observe uh, a certain amount of interesting horse trading goes on really there are How I does can't that work? well I can't reveal <laughs> exact details all the most interesting things that happen of course have to be off the record and, and unreported uh, particularly the sometimes quite harsh criticisms of books that they don't like uh, but oh, go on tell us tell you us. do you do begin to see to some degree books that people have championed in a first round of discussion fall by the wayside and very occasionally it didn't actually happen this year very occasionally you'll get a book that nobody really favoured in the first round comes in as a sort of compromise candidate it makes me wonder what these people do when they're choosing candidates for CEO or or board memberships (laughs) and the CMI awards the management book of the year awards take place in February Mm -hmm. how familiar does that sound do you go through a similar process well actually our process is quite different So the short answer would be no. But where I do agree with Andrew is we're looking for the criteria of enjoyability as well as um, impact. And the way we judge our entries, and we have over 150 entries, is first our members judge them, right? So members generally are not going to get to the end of the book if it's not enjoyable. So it has to be something that that resonates with them and that they can read till the end. And then we leave it to our companions to judge from the short list that the members have drawn Uh, But we do make it a little bit easier because we have five different categories and we have a category winner and then one overall winner, which the, you know, the eminent panel of luminaries like your judges uh, select. What are the five categories? We have one called, for example, the commuters read, right? So you can read it on your commute. Yeah. Um, We have another called management features. We have another one on uh, management education. That's where some of the worthy books get their shot uh, because, you know, they're used by the business schools. So so they have their own little category and that's you right. can read them if you want to. Yes, yeah. yes. So that's how we do it. And um, and again, that's a competition that goes from strength to strength. We do it in conjunction with the British Library. Do your judges, do they disagree in the same way? Is there, a, you know, what's it like behind the scenes? Well, they, you know, poor judges, they have to read these books um, over Christmas. So. <laughs> Quite right. <laughs> so some of them actually use it as an excuse. I think I'll repair to my study, escape the family uh, for a bit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then, you know, so the judging is taking place largely over email, except for the final mm. um, selection of the overall winner. Mm. Uh, and, you know, generally, I think there's a consensus, but what nobody likes is what Andrew referred to as the lowest common denominator so when people do have a robust debate it should be a worthy winner so last year's winner was frugal innovation how to do more with less which is by obviously, uh, by navi raju and jaideep prabhu mm-hmm. actually andrew was saying he just saw one of the authors yes um, and again a very worthy winner and somebody well this book is trying to make sense of the modern world for people um 
and very relatable. What's interesting, if I'm right in saying there isn't there isn't a huge amount of overlap between our long list and and your long lists. I mean, there are occasional overlaps, and indeed a lot of the themes in last year. I was looking at the short list again, um, like neuroscience and mm-hmm. innovation and big data are similar themes to ones that are picked up by ours. But the niche that we've each found ourselves in, perhaps by kind of evolution more than anything else, is is slightly different. I mean, the management books, the pure management books, don't get enough of a look in. I don't think. Mm-hmm on our list as uh, as they obviously do get a big look in on the mm-hmm. CMI list. No, there's definitely a, a leaning towards big themes on our shortlist. Yes, and over the years that has developed into being what the judges feel like they want. So in mm. a way, it's the tone of the award has developed since it started in that in that direction, making it a bit more difficult for the more practical books yes. to get in. Yes, yes. I, I, I think you're right. I think we're more of a populist. Mm. Uh, we take more of a populist approach, but also segmented, which does, of course, give the management education books, uh, you know, their due. But yes. of course, our books are entered as, I think yours are, they're entered by the publisher. Yes, absolutely. Once again, you can take a look at our shortlist at our best business books site at ft.com business hyphen book hyphen award next our business book challenge we the ft's work and careers editors have invited our favorite ft commentators to challenge listeners to read or reread six classic business books in 12 weeks here's how it works each week a star commentator will choose their favorite business book we'll give you two weeks to read the book before we invite our commentator back into the studio to explain their choice you can join the the discussion by tweeting us at FT Work Careers or you can email us at businessbookclub at ft.com. Our first challenge is set by John Thornhill, innovation editor. John has chosen a biography as his classic business book, Andrew Carnegie by David Nassau. And here's John with his pitch. There are two reasons to read David Nassau's monumental biography of Andrew Carnegie. First, it provides fabulous insights into the practices of one of the greatest business geniuses of all time. For good and bad, every executive can learn something from the ruthless way Carnegie invested early in promising technologies, created and exploited new markets, and crushed the competition. Second, Nassau deftly tells the riveting tale of how an immigrant Scottish boy became the richest man in the world and then gave away his vast wealth. He more or less invented modern philanthropy. Business history on this scale is hard to beat. Thank you, John, for that succinct pitch. Facts about the book. Andrew Carnegie was published in 2006. It was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize for Biography that year. David Nassau is a professor of history at City University in New York. And he is also the biographer, of course, of Joseph Kennedy in the uh, the book published last year, which was another New York Times bestseller. And what do you think of, of John's choice? Well, I think it's actually very strangely relevant to a lot of the themes that are brought up in the uh, shortlist of 2016, uh, because as, as we know, no, Andrew Carnegie was, yes, an incredibly successful business person, but also famously philanthropic. And, you know, in his view, one of the worst things you could do was amass wealth uh, and not distribute it back. And, of course, several of the books in this year's shortlist criticize mm. a modern capitalist society for doing just that. You know, makers and society, takers being exactly, the, the obvious one. Of yes. takers, not makers. Or even uh, um, R.J. Gordon's book, The Rise and Fall of American Growth. Um, so I think it's a, it's a good read for today. Today's leaders, as um, I think he's advocating that all of the CEOs and certainly all of the investors and hedge fund guys should read. (laughs) 
<laughs> and Andrew, will you be reading Andrew Carnegie in the next two weeks? Well, I'd love to say I'd already read it. In, if it came out in 2006, it probably ought to have been on our long list in the 2006 Book Awards. So I feel a bit ashamed about that. <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm looking forward to trying to read it in two weeks. It's a big book. It's a long book. How and many uh, I think it's sort of well over the 600 Oof. mark. Um, but the uh, some of the themes that Anne mentioned, I think, are, as you say, are likely to be extremely relevant. And I mean, he's a fascinating he's a fascinating character, and of course, one who's left his mark everywhere across mm-hmm. Britain and around the world through the philanthropy, through the libraries mm-hmm. that he opened. You see his name around the place. There's an interesting read across to Uber, which is obviously the the, the big um, disruptive influence of of now, because they put money behind Carnegie Mellon University to develop uh, autonomous cars, autonomous driving uh, technology. And so there's a little bit of sort of double philanthropy there, fast philanthropy in the case of Uber. Carnegie took a whole career to to build up the wealth that he then distributed. Uber's already handing it out now. Is John Thornhill right? Should all leaders read Andrew Carnegie in 2016? You can join the discussion by tweeting us at FTWorkCareers with the hashtag FTBizBooks, that's B-I-Z books, or you can email us at businessbookclub at We'll be back in the studio with John in two weeks' time to discuss Andrew Carnegie by David Nassau, and we very much hope you will join us. In the meantime, thank you to Andrew Hill. Been a pleasure. And to Anne Franker. Thank you. And thank you to our producer, Yanina Conboy. And thank you for listening. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., 